Hi, I'm Dubba, I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this... No, you know what, let's do this differently. I'm 11 years old, in the back seat of a car between my two sisters. Mum and Dad in the front seat, driving north over the Auckland Harbour Bridge. It's just after Christmas, getting to the height of the New Zealand summer, heading to a rented beach house in Stanmore Bay on the Whangaparoa Peninsula, and the radio's on. AM radio, this is the 70s. Not always exactly entirely on the frequency, occasionally dipping out behind hills or through tunnels, but it's foreground. We don't simply have it on, we're listening. Casey Kasem's American Top 40 year-end show with the uh, long-distance dedications, the stories behind the music on the charts, and that iconic voice now lost to us except through cartoon reruns. And when it was too wet to go to the beach, we'd listen to the old BBC comedies on 1YA, The Navy Lark, Dad's Army, Round the Horn, I'm sorry I'll read that again, and The Goons, which I really loved. And some years later, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy made an impression in a way that explains a great deal about what was to come over the next 35 years. And much later again, I discovered things like This American Life, A Prairie Home Companion. I made radio stories for a living for a while back there, documentaries, kids' stories, sci-fi dramas. We made them out of tape and razor blades at first. Later we tried all sorts of new digital technologies, some better than others, which is to say storytelling, narrative and sound, the human voice. These things are interesting for me. So when you're me and you meet a real storyteller, someone who does this for real, for a lifetime, and for NASA, among others, you pay attention. And so I find myself in Inverness, in Scotland, a place I have an ancestral connection to, in a converted chapel, behind a microphone, across the table from Jay O'Callaghan, who's come to Expo North, a conference and festival of creative industries, to talk about his life and his work, and to sit down with me and explore creativity and the connection between the oldest storytelling medium and the most advanced technology that propels human imagination to the outer limits of space. And even though, yes, we've had weeks of celebration of the 50 years on from the moon landing, there's still a way of telling the Neil Armstrong story in a way you haven't heard it before. I'm Andrew Dubber, this is the MTF Podcast, and this is Jay O'Callaghan. Uh, I do use the word storyteller. I could say I'm someone who plays with sound and images. And I play with sound, um, hello, hello, I want to say hello, which is part of, the, part of the NASA story. It's the Voyager. And I play with a dialogue. Well, I'm strong. This is an old admiral. What's your latest story? Moon, sir. Moon, what is that? The moon, sir. The, the moon. So I play with dialogue. I play with sound. I play with rhythm. I play with image. And very often, image leads me right through a story. You know, if there's time, I'll tell you a bit of a, a bit of an experimental story. Sure. Um, well, let me just begin it. So, when I was a boy, that was my dad whistling for us to come home. We lived in a neighborhood called Pill Hill on the edge of Boston, filled with doctors. 
And as a boy of seven, eight, and nine, it was filled with sights and sounds. We were right on the top, and at the bottom of the hill was a women's hospital. We called it Forceps Avenue. And one of the sights was one of the nurses finishing a shift coming up the hill. Starched white hat, starched uniform, and a blue cape. And there was something noble about the blue cape. And she might stop halfway up to wave at the, the custodian of the neighbor tennis court, Old John. And Old John was like no one had ever seen. He would roll the court. He would water, dampen it down. But he was bent. He, perhaps he was in a terrible fire. He was bent, and his face was creased, and his hands, well, his ears, ears looked like dried apricots. And his mouth was in the wrong place. But his mind was fine. How are you, John? Fine. How are you? He was one of the sights of my boyhood. And another sight was right across the street was a tin green garage belonging to the Lawrences. It was the only tin green garage I've ever seen in my life. It was a dark green, and it was important because Dr. Lawrence was the tide of the neighborhood. We all loved him. He would back out of the tin green garage, maybe at 7.30, go off to the Faulkner Hospital, Jamaica Plain in Boston, and come back about 7.30 or 8. Every night, seven days a week, he was the tide. So there was something dependable in boyhood about Dr. Lawrence. And then there were the sights and sounds of the parties my parents had. We had a huge house. People would come in on a winter night, and it was a dance. Ten or fifteen had come in, and there was a dance of the hats coming off and the coats coming off, and there was the dance of the smell of the lipstick and perfume and the cold. Then there was the dance of my parents, how are you, Harry? Everyone greeted. Then there was the dance of, soon enough people had highballs. They didn't call them lowballs, they were highballs. So there was the dance of the language. There was chicken a la king. It was never Turkey Allah King, it was Chicken Allah King. Where did these names? As a boy, I was fascinated with all of these names. And then I would say, Uncle Eric, Uncle Eric, he was a big man. Play the piano, and Uncle Eric would go into a large piano room, sit down, and his, his hands would come down on the keys, and Mrs. Lawrence said it was like, it was like thunderbolts, lightning on the keys, and that was not totally a compliment. But I loved the way he played, and then he would swivel around so that he would be looking at us, and only his right hand would be playing the piano. So this goes on, but it's a series of impressions, uh -huh. and it's a different way of telling a story, and it, it fascinates me. Just series of impressions, ending with the whistle, and the boy going up, the dance is over. It's 1.30 at night, and the only person left is the father playing the piano. And the boy has a sense in that melody that he knows something of the secret of his father. So I say all that because it's, it's an exploration. It's not a story in an ordinary sense. Mm -hmm. 
It's certainly a different response to uh, who are you and where do you come from and what do you do than, than you ordinarily get in these kinds of contexts. And, and the way that you tell that story reminds me very much of Garrison Keillor and the way that those images are brought together. I think there's, there's, a, there's a real thread of the American storyteller that is kind of evident in, in that kind of radio storytelling. Yes, yes, that's true. There is the thread of impressions. Yeah, absolutely. So you became professionally a storyteller and then you find yourself at NASA. There has to be something in between those two things. <laughs> yeah, there's a great deal. I, uh, my children really did listen me into being a storyteller. And I was unconsciously learning that there is a great power in the listener, the listener's face, the listener's appreciation for my children. It was just smiling or laughing or or Go Daddy Go, which meant the next story. And I was discovering that I was drawn to rhythms. I might read, run, run, fast as you can. I wouldn't read, run, run, fast as you can. Run, run, fast as you can. Can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. So I'm discovering rhythms with my children, just as a clarinetist is discovering. You know, getting better at the technique, but discovering what they love about this. This is years. And then I began to tell it in, in our town, Marshfield, in the schools, just for fun. And one day, this is one of these moments in life. Uh, I had told at a local school, and the radio was on saying, are you feeling sorry for yourself? Do something. So I called Mr. Dower, Jay O'Kellan. How are you, Jay? Mr. Dower, I'm a professional storyteller now. He said, what does that mean? It means you pay me. <laughs> <laughs> and he invited me down, and that was the beginning of being a professional storyteller. And it really blossomed in the Boston area. And then there was the challenge, you know, can I make a story about Things adults would like, and I make a historical story. And in time, a, a local town, Harvard, Massachusetts, said, this is our 350th anniversary, can you do a story? And that led me into this world of commissionings where you do enter a brand new world. And with NASA, I, I had no idea what engineers did. I certainly didn't study engineering, but now I'm in their world. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting down with someone who has flown the X-15 fastest plane in the world. Armstrong flew that. I'm sitting down with, uh, with astronauts, all these different people. So that, that's the glory of entering a real world. So with my children, it was all imaginary. I began to know that world very well. So it's entering this world. It's almost like an imaginary world, but it's real. These people have really flown the X-15, and I can ask them what, it, what it's like and slowly get into the world of, of Armstrong and that particular moment of descending in a lunar module. It's been tested on Earth, but not tested leaving the command module headed down to the moon, and everything goes wrong. Mm. And Armstrong, because of this career, is able to handle it. There's a military background, I understand. Military background. He was in the Navy, and in Korea, his wing was sliced off. He had to eject, came down in a rice paddy, 
might have died then. Yeah. And he faced death as part of the training for this, faced death again. And I really admired, particularly the descent, you know, I had a I was torn between telling that and J.C. Heigl today because it tells so much about Armstrong in four or five minutes. Was he concerned more about the death of others than his own death? Is that where that sort of strength comes from? Um, That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I know that he, he had a humility but a practical side so that that became a question who will stand on the moon first Mm. and Buzz Aldrin wanted to but Neil Armstrong was the commander of this and the people around him knew him and thought he just was better because of his calmness and his background to be the first one so these kind of hidden struggles um, told a lot about him. Mm. There's an entire story. That the movie First Men deals with it, but I'm not sure they totally capture it. And that is that these it was all guys at first, they're not at home. Their kids are growing up. Mm. And it's hard for the wives. And finally, Armstrong is this celebrated figure, leaves NASA, but he's just as busy. He's, he's not exactly reclusive, but he doesn't want to give interviews. Everyone in the world wants him, but he's on this board and that board. And finally, his wife says, that's it. I get divorced. Mm-hmm. And it's a very difficult emotional time for him. Because in a sense, he's still moving, moving, moving. Anyway, there's, yeah, I was in the Navy, and I just knew of how many divorces there were. Mm. We'd be on cruises 10 months away. And after a while, the mothers say, the mothers and wives, I can't do it. Because mm. the, the very personal story side of that sort of thing is, is something I feel like that we're now beginning to tell. It's always been the mythology and the big grand adventurer stories that we've yes. had in the past. Do, do you think story has evolved in that way that we've become more inwardly focused, more personal, more interested in, in things like grief and isolation than in kind of uh, conquest and, and uh, exploration? Well, that's also a wonderful question. Um, I think people are hungry for that. There's a columnist, David Brooks, for the New York Times. I don't know if you read him, but he, he's very interested in this, in not getting caught in a capitalist society with just fame and money and importance, but something much deeper. And I think that's a huge struggle in, in America, maybe, maybe Europe, because the, the draw to become a star is huge, as if it will solve all of your problems. Right. You won't have any more angst. And of course it doesn't. Um, so I like the question, because maybe that's a thread running through at least America now. Yeah. We have a, a very different president. and uh, I mean, he doesn't seem to be a spiritual person. But Obama did. Obama was a man of language and reading and, uh, and I think, searching. 
Do you think the context for narrative has changed a lot? I mean, obviously we've had sort of gone from stories around the campfire to written stories to print to uh, recordings and broadcasting and, and, and where we're at with digital technologies now, do you think that the nature of stories changes in those different shifts through media? I think it can. There is huge competition with movies and television. Mm. And they are different. They're visual. They're not you listening, creating. With storytelling, there are two creators, two artists. There is the teller, and the listener is creating all these images. So earlier today, I told a story about J.C. Heigl, and what I hope is that the audience is creating this young man going down to police station. I want to be a policeman. And this young man um, running into Apollo 13 Flight Control Center. No, don't abort. Send them around the moon. I hope the listener creates this dramatic scene as opposed to seeing it as a play. Just different forms. Mm. But the powerful part about this is you create. And in a technological society that's really pushing to, the, to take time to create, you need story. Mm. It's one of the ways you can create. It was exciting after this morning to have several young fellows come down and say, I I'm a drama student. Mm. I do monologues. And what do you think of that? They were excited to be drama students. Yeah. I could feel their excitement. I loved that. And, and it is something that is teachable and learnable too. It I guess. is, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody tells stories and everybody can tell them better. It is teachable. That's wonderful. Right. Yes. One of the things that we do at Music Tech Fest is very much centered around innovation with the idea that we don't know what the solutions are going to be. I know you talk about uh, Armstrong and uh, the moon mission being that the goal was known. Even though yeah. nobody knew how to get there, the yes. goal was known. The goal was known. What we work with a lot is, is a lot of stuff where th there is no goal. There is like, let us build, let us innovate, let us create. How do you weave story when you don't know where the story will take you? That's the way I always began. Certainly with my children. I don't know where the story's going to go. There's something in me that as a father trusts them. So there's not this, oh, am I, is it going to work? Are they going to laugh at me? And even as a boy of 14, I would make up stories. But I was careful never to tell to an adult. I think I knew that the adults say, you know, that could be better if you did this, mm. which I didn't need at 14. And I didn't need it as a 30-year-old father, that listener. So, so I had no idea where the stories would go. And sometimes I would hear, <laughs> they were asleep, I was crushed. Um, I didn't generally have the courage to go into a school, particularly when you have 200 kids, and just wing it. Uh, occasionally I did. But generally I'd come in, you know, like a jazz man. This, this is what I'm going to play. It's a story. And I know the notes. And I love the notes. And I love the characters. And I love doing it over and over and over to get deeper into the character with my body. Mm -hmm. My body is very important. And that's different. Every storyteller is different. But for me, the body. So trust was important. And the listeners were important. Um, 
And they were gifts. I, I wouldn't be here without my children. Let's talk about that embodiment side of things. Uh, when you say your body is important, is it about the expression of the story or is there something in the human body that kind of generates these, uh, these narratives and these stories? Yes, yes, yes. The, the, body, uh, the body helps me be there with the character uh, Mrs. Lawrence across the street was a wonderful eccentric. Uh, children, on Wednesdays we have cookies and dickens. And when I tell that story, I, I stand and I can feel her. Cookies and dickens, children. Uh, why don't we read Electra the play I did in college? You children, you, you do page 42. I'm Electra, the play begins. And somehow my, my body and my hands take over. Uh, to so some extent, I get out of the way. Uh-huh. My body leads me. And I, I said that earlier with Armstrong. I know the Navy, so I know standing at attention. Because I have to say, your posture when you are talking about these different people radically <laughs> changes. <laughs> yes. You become very stiff when you talk about Armstrong, and, and your arms are at 90-degree angles, and you <laughs> yeah. sit upright. And, yeah, yeah it's, it's a very different uh, sort of embodiment of the character. But does that character come from the, the body, or does the body represent your storytelling? Uh, the body definitely informs the story and helps me be present. Uh-huh. Helps me. I'm, in a sense, I'm, I'm aside because I'm strong. So the scene is Armstrong reporting for duty. Sir, he's talking to this old man who lifts his head. Uh, Armstrong. So then the body is just the head and voice. Uh-huh. Uh, Armstrong, Navy pilot. And Armstrong in the scene is really bringing this man back to, he remembers when he's an admiral, and his body changes. And, mm-hmm. and this, this fellow is just Armstrong, he's the Navy, but I'm the admiral. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's quite mysterious. It's a story I would have loved to told, told here, called The Herring Shed in Nova Scotia, New Scotland, about a girl, Maggie Thomas, this is a real to her real work. At 14, during World War II, she's in a herring shed. I'm in the gill, open the mouth, slip it on the rod and the head in shed. There are three women in the herring shed and the death telegrams are coming into the herring shed. So they are very much part of the war and the war effort. But that that gesture brings me to Maggie Thomas. I'm in the gill, open the mouth, it's very cold. It's repetitive work, but there's a real relationship with these two other, a girl and a woman. Uh, so the body is key. I, I've told that in the radio, and even in the studio, I definitely do this. You know, I don't stand there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ideally, in you know, a studio, I'm standing up watching the mic, but my body becomes Maggie and my voice. Mm. Narrative gives us meaning. Is, is what we hear a lot, that, that uh, it's a way of our understanding the world, making sense of it. Human beings are human beings because they connect threads of narrative together. Yes. Um, what does it mean to innovate, to create, and how do we make sense of that? Just the creative process? Yeah. Uh, I do a lot of workshops, and the whole idea of the workshops is to just draw creativity out. 
through, often through objects. Yesterday in the workshop, I said, tell a memory when you were a child of a phone. And people had some wonderful memories. A little girl and just this, this little finger turning the dial. And words like there was a phone table. And for one woman, you go into the phone room and it always smelled because the ashtray was filled with cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And there was the warmth of the radiator. Well, in telling this memory, she's really creating. Mm -hmm. And we, the listeners, are invited into that moment. Why is that important? Why are we... Why is that important? Why? Oh, why is it important? Because we are creating, and somehow we're part of her world. This is all in 90 seconds. But we're invited in. Another woman told, told of a phone. Her mother is in the phone. She's a little girl jumping up and down, and her mother is always pleasant. Stop! And the mother never does that. The mother has just heard of the death of her mother. And this woman is telling a moment she's never forgotten. It's, it's sitting there. And we're moved by that moment. And somehow that's very human to be invited into the world, uh, not through, you know, what do you, what do you think of, of Trump or something. It's not the, just the conceptual world. It's different. Mm. It's the world of images and it's the world of her life. Mm. And that, I think that makes us more human. We're invited in, not just to her mental process, her life. Because it feels like we're more than a collection of facts. Exactly, exactly. Yes. And that's why cocktail parties can be hard. Because... <laughs> how do you get around that? Okay, so as a storyteller, giving advice to somebody going to a cocktail party, how do you get past this, what do you do, what's your name, you know, what role do you fill in society, those sorts of questions. How, do you, how does somebody who is not a professional storyteller get deeper and more connected and more human and more, more narrative-led? Other than leaving. Uh, <laughs> last night my wife is brilliant at it. We were talking with a man who will be speaking today. I'm not sure his name. Uh, but what part of Scotland? And that's all he needed to tell us about the island. And then later I asked him about Harris. And he said, oh, yes, the young people are leaving. And then I told the story. I said, oh, yes, Jamie was in the workshop today. And Jamie was telling about how he was a, a window washer in Harris. And there were often candles inside, and he thought one day, why not have a candle-making factory with fragrant candles? And that's led to a whole step factories. Now they're going to a brewery. So a lot of the young people are staying. Mm -hmm. He's interested, Jamie. Because of this connecting thread that draws yes. one fact into another fact. Yes. So to me, I think that the, the, it sounds like what you're saying is that the narrative is in the, is in the parts between facts, the yes. thing that connects the facts. It is. Yeah. It is. And he had the brilliance to connect this. Uh, you know, this is the big story. This is Harris, people leaving. Oh, maybe they can work at this factory. Maybe this other factory. So he's practically... You know, inventing these, these real things, mm -hmm. making the narrative of Harris different. What's the relationship between narrative and performance? 
how do, how do those things work together? Well, that, that's a good question because there is uh, there is the formal part of performance, which is exciting, particularly the moment you feel people are uh, they're not nervous anymore. They're involved in J.C. Heigl or they're involved in the moon landing, and they're no longer really interested in me. They're in, is he going to make it? Everybody knows, but when you're here, you're worried. Is Armstrong going to make it? So you're involved, all creating together. That's very exciting. Interesting. So when you were working with NASA, what was specifically your role there? What, was the, what were you brought in to do? It was the 50th anniversary, and that was important because Ed Hoffman had a good hook I'm bringing him in because it's our 50th, and this is a different way, and that made sense to them. My job was never, uh, I was told, make sure you tell about uh, people in space and robots in space. Get them both. It's the 50th, so how do you encompass 50 years? And do you touch on a major failure? Krista McAuliffe, the teacher in space, 1986. Challenger. The challenger lifts up in 73 seconds. There's a fireball. There's a big story there. What happened? And it's a very moving story of communication not working. As a result, several people die. Do I put that in? And if I do, well, NASA people said, well, we hired you. Don't, don't spend 15 minutes of your story on this failure. Nobody ever said that. Uh-huh. It made a huge impression in the United States. To leave it out would have been false. So I wanted to do that. I had to decide, Armstrong, is that everybody does some, some people said, no, we know about that. Well, in fact, even the people at NASA didn't realize hard it was. Is that about healing? Yes, that's a good question too. Very definitely. I like that because also dealing with the challenger was about healing. Just putting it out there and feeling the loss. You, you get to know her in the story. You get to know Krista McAuliffe. She's got two children. She's got a husband. She's a teacher. And, and it's all over in 73 seconds. Mm. You care about her. And you care about the man who tried to stop it. Uh, I got a good feeling uh, for him. Let's see what was his name? Roger Beaujolais. Uh, the NASA story became quite personal to me. I always wanted to tell about Krista. Roger Beaujolais worked for the Morton Thiokol Company. They built this solid rocket booster. And he tried to tell the months ahead We've got to address this problem of the O-rings. The hot gases are going by them, and if they go by the secondary ring, there's going to be an explosion, people are going to die. Well, the company didn't deal with it. Hmm. And the night before, it's to take off January 28th, 1986, the night before, the day before, NASA calls Morton Thiokol Company, are we safe to launch? The manager says, no, 
You just told me it's going to be freezing. We haven't launched unless it's 53 degrees above. I'm afraid of the O-rings freezing and they won't seal. So there's a big conference that night and NASA man gets angry and says, what do you want us to do, wait till April to launch? So the managers in Mortenthal Company says, NASA, we'll be back on the horn. We're going to talk among ourselves, make a managerial decision. The engineers are excluded. Roger Beaujolais runs forward, says, look at these two photos. The hot gas has gone by the primary. It scorched the secondary. You can't take this chance. Not listened to. This is Greek drama. Manager calls back, NASA, it's safe to launch. Those people are going to die. In the morning, 6, 6.30, seven of them have breakfast. They're given a weather briefing. It's 24 degrees, wind chilled, freezing. So... They get into the Challenger, it lifts off, it doesn't take much time, 73 seconds, the hot gas has gone through fireball because the O-rings couldn't expand in that cold. Mm. It really was a Greek tragedy because none of the, the crew members knew. S- stories like this, and all stories, I guess, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yes. But the people in that story, most of the people in that story, go on to have a life beyond it. Yes. And and that feels like when somebody's story has already ended, what then do they do? Do we create new stories? Do we fold that into the narrative of our lives? I mean, what, what became of Roger Beaujolais, for instance? The practical part is that um, NASA studied that and said we have a failure... How can we deal with this failure? Huge commission. And that's a whole story, and there's a kind of bureaucratic look, but there's a famous scientist who's listening. Oh, nobody told me about those O-rings. He's talking to ordinary workers, and he figures out that's that's it. It was the O-rings. They're Mm -hmm. kind of hiding it. Right. So this Feynman, the scientist, goes in front of the Congress... He's got a glass and ice in it, and he takes some uh, rubber, I think it was, and puts it in and says, look at that, it's contracting. That's what happened. Uh Quite brilliant. So there was this whole story of what happened. Can we find the truth? Then there was the, the other story that I don't think anybody really follows up. What happens to the husband? What happens to the children? Uh, We're... I don't know what was left of the body because it challenge comes down and smashes into the ocean. I happened to be picked up by a cab driver when I was in Florida. He said I was part of the, the mission that pulled it up. So the bodies must have been terribly smashed. But I did go to the cemetery in Concord, New Hampshire, and somehow that seemed important to just stand there. Mm-hmm. And I tried to interview her husband, and I think he was wise. He had it. He's a judge. His life goes on. He doesn't want to talk about the past. But that, that is a story. It's a whole story of she, she was a heroine to a lot of people. 
I, th- I find that really interesting, the, the judge, the husband, who obviously went on to have a life, but he must feel in some ways, because of the sort of the epic scale of the story and the yeah. Greek tragedy of it, that he was a minor character in his own life. He was a character, and maybe that's why he stopped. Uh, he would not uh, answer my, my letters. Can, uh-huh. can I just talk for a while? Hmm. Maybe he didn't want to be defined that way, or you know, he's the husband did go on being a judge in Concord. I don't know if he's alive now. I know, I think his children are in California. It'd be fun to talk to them. Mm. You know, you bring up a whole point. Do, do people ever say, was your mother the yeah. one? But do you get to, I mean, this is, we, we all imagine ourselves as the central character in our own plot. <laughs> yes, but, but I guess there must be situations like that where the, the story that you're part of is much bigger than you are. And, yes. and what that must feel like and mean. Well, I liked your word epic. Uh, all of these people, but particularly Armstrong, is part of something so much bigger than him. Uh-huh. You think of thousands of years and people looking at the moon and wondering what it's like. Now he steps on the moon. Yeah. Do you think there's a, there's a point where that's going to ever become commonplace? <laughs> I do, I do. Because NASA now is going to head to the moon to, to have people living there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit sad, but, but at the same time, there were many astronauts that, who said when they were up there looking back, they thought how fragile this is. Why can't we do better than just be at war? Edgar Mitchell had a PhD, was in the Navy, MIT, so very scientific. Twelfth man, step on the moon. When he was coming back, he said his whole life changed. He had this powerful sense that everything is interconnected. Mm. And part of him is weeping because the Vietnam War is going on. And he wanted to spend the rest of his life Finding out how can the, the human mind you know, meditate, be a mystic, and yet be scientific? How does the mind work in, in an attempt to see if we can do better? It was wonderful to interview him. I bet, I bet. That, moment. That, that perspective on the world, looking back at the Earth as a whole, uh, a lot of astronauts talk about, and I think yes. that's, that's really interesting. And, and these kind of what we think of as epic tales of the, the you know, going to the moon and, and setting foot on the moon, they are also smaller chapters of a larger narrative of, of human endeavour and human you know, uh, imagination and, and yes. how we develop. What do you think, if that is the overarching narrative, what do you think the main themes are? What are we learning as a result of all this? I did like the idea of the dream, the vision, and possibility. One of Emily Dickinson's poems begin, I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose more numerous of windows. You know, if you're a possibility, then that windows are open, more numerous of doors. I dwell in possibility of fair house and prose. To me, prose is, don't take a risk. Uh, oh, no, that can't happen. Prose is safe. But possibility, it, it opens the chest. So I liked that. I liked... Uh, let's let's do this. We don't know how we get to the moon, but let's do this. And then, to me, much more exciting is the Voyager's two small spacecraft. 
In 77, they took off, September, August, September. And now they have left the solar system. Mm. Carrying, of all things, a record. Yes, and carrying a golden record with many of the sounds and music of the Earth. They're not the Beatles. Apparently, they they couldn't get the rights. No, the Beatles (laughs) didn't get on there. (laughs) Pygmy Girl's Initiation song, Louis Armstrong, is on there. (laughs) Yes. Well, but uh, but out there somewhere is the sound of at least who we were. But uh, yes. And do you find yourself as the person who captures these stories and, and narratives that your own story is, is somehow woven into that, or is it uh, is it left behind? Is it not the important bit anymore? Um, where is your story in all of these stories? Well, part of my story is, is leaving the, the solar system. Part of my story does feel that I'm with the Voyager. Part of me admires Ed Stone when he was 35, a scientist, became the chief project manager. Now, how many people can say, well, now my work has left the solar system. Sure. You know, I've been with this since I was 35 years old. So I love that expansiveness. Uh-huh. Um, I'd like to think every radio broadcaster could say that. That their work is now leaving oh, the solar system. Oh, which is wonderful. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Going off in there. Yes, I do love that. Yeah, yeah. I love the sense of flowing into one another's lives. It seems like metaphor is the the thing that uh, it's this idea that there is something bigger than us, and that all these things that we do they mean something bigger. They mean something yeah. grander. Is it important for us to believe that there's something bigger and something that we're connected to and you know, whether the fact of that or not is, is the case, do you think that we need that? Oh, I think absolutely. Uh, I think the wonderful moments in our life are when we're part of something bigger. could be the birth, could be the death. But, but you know, the death of a parent was huge when my dad died. But, but it's, it's part of what life is also death. It's also loss. It's also birth. It's also discovery. It's also surprise. It's also, you know, going to this play. Amazing. How did they think of that? Emily Dickinson. How did she think of that? Mm. The crickets sang and set the sun. She does that all the time. Crickets are these little ordinary things and then set the sun. She jumps to the cosmic. Yeah. So in a way, she is, she is us. She's lightning. The universe in a grain of sand. Yes, yeah. yes, the same thing, yeah. in a grain of sand, yeah. Fantastic. Jay, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, you're a wonderful interviewer, this is such fun. Thank you, I really enjoyed talking <laughs> about this, it's very close to my heart. That's Jay O'Callaghan, storyteller to, quite literally, the stars. And that's the MTF podcast. Hope you enjoyed, and if you did, please tell someone about it, like, share, rate, review, that would certainly mean a lot. If this was the first one you've heard, make sure you go back and check out some others, from AI researchers to authors, legendary musicians and inventors, music tech CEOs and academics, and of course, all with some wonderful stories to tell. Have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. 